Well, welcome again this morning as we continue on in our new Advent series, Lineage of Hope. I don't know about you, but I'm certainly excited about the opportunity to linger at the person and work of Jesus. Already, as you're walking through the big box stores, supermarkets, we're already being bombarded with the consumeristic mindset of Christmas. Do you feel it? Do you see it? Have your kids already dropped off their laundry list of hopeful Christmas gifts, maybe, right? It just, it's the season that, that we have right now, and this is an opportunity for us as a church to pause, to take a strategic time out and say, we're not going to fall into being conformed to this world. Uh, but we're going to allow our minds to be transformed by the personal work of Jesus. We're going to be countercultural in this and affirm that Christmas is not a season or a holiday on the calendar. It is about a person. And so, yes, we are well aware that Thanksgiving has not come yet, and we're talking about Christmas. How many of you are having anxiety because we're we're putting Christmas before Thanksgiving. Any Okay, yeah, add a couple. I see some hands out there. Some strict holiday observers where we have to do this in order. I understand singing Christmas music in November is sometimes, yeah, we'll pray for them. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll add you on our prayer list. But I, I know singing Christmas music before Thanksgiving is, is, is wrong in, in many people's minds, but uh, we're going we're gonna to plow ahead with, with this plan. And so I hope that you're encouraged I hope you are blessed. I hope that your mind is recalibrated as we work through this extended Advent season. And last week, very thankful for Pastor Dave kicking off this new series, Lineage of Hope, as we looked at Adam and a better representative where the first Adam has failed. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, has perfectly represented us before the Father and this Morning, I'm going to continue on in this series, Lineage of Hope, as we're going to look at Enoch, a better righteousness. And as you look at Luke chapter number three, and you look at that genealogy, that line of Christ, Enoch is probably not one that you, you really lean into and say, wow, I, I bet there's just a lot for us to, to glean there. Um, but Enoch, nonetheless, is there in the line of Christ, Right? And uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's recorded for us in Scripture. And from a historical perspective, we, we know Enoch is, is there in the line of Christ as a descendant of Adam. And so uh, we want to look at this somewhat obscure figure in the Old Testament. And we want to ask the Lord um, to just bless us and to lead us and guide us as we look into the Word of God and consider this figure uh, a righteous man, nonetheless, in Scripture, but as we look forward to this reality that Jesus truly has a better righteousness for us. Would you join me in prayer as we just ask the Lord to bless our time together? Let's pray. God, we come to you now. and We pray that you would work in our midst. I pray that your Holy Spirit truly would stir us up as we have faithfully gathered together, Jesus Christ, under your headship, under the authority of the word of God, 
Father, I thank you in your sovereignty that your perfect redemptive plan has unfolded from generation to generation. You did not leave us in the failure of the first Adam, but you loved us so much that you sent your son, a better Adam, with a better representation and a better righteousness. So Father, even as we have taken this pause from our expositional series through Hebrews, I pray that all that we have learned about the gospel and about the personal work of Jesus would carry into this Advent series. I pray that we as a church would glory and marvel in all that you have done, Father, in sending your son, Emmanuel, to take on flesh and to be God among us. I thank you for your word, God. I pray that you would use it to change us, to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Do a work that I could not do. Guide my words. Help us as hearers to gladly receive your word and to obey it and walk in it. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Again, what is the opportunity before us as we consider Enoch and a better righteousness? Again, for far too many Christians, we have fallen into this rat race of the Christmas season, and Christmas has been diluted down to just another holiday, one that we celebrate and we have family traditions and lots of fun and and good things happen around this holiday, but I wonder, even as believers, have we lost the true meaning of Christmas, and this is our heart as elders in launching this series, not at December 1st, but now through the month of November for us to recapture and recalibrate the true significance of Christmas. We fear as we look at culture and as we look at the American church that we're losing the wonder and the glory and the majesty of Christ and the gospel. So, oh, that it would, be sever- net, that it would never be said of us that we dilute down Christmas to songs that are sung or family traditions, but we remember that Jesus has come on a mission to seek and to save the lost. Do you remember these beautiful prophecies in Isaiah, Isaiah 7, verse number 14? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Do you remember that prophecy? How beautiful it is, hundreds of years before Jesus, and perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you remember Micah 5, verse number 2? But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be, uh, to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." Do you remember Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. 
How beautiful these verses are and the glory and the majesty and the wonder of it all is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled perfectly these prophecies. Jesus truly is the long-awaited-for Messiah. And it's he that we celebrate during this Advent season. There's so much core doctrine and theology for us to unpack in this narrative of the Christmas story from the virgin birth to the hypostatic union. What does that refer to? Or if you remember in previous years, we've unpacked that, talking about the union of the divine and human natures of Jesus in one individual existence. We've looked at that in Hebrews, even. This God-man, Jesus Christ, he was uniquely qualified to serve as the mediator, to stand in the gap, and to perfectly represent mankind before God the Father. And it was he alone that accomplished this work of salvation for humanity through his death, his burial, and his resurrection that we come to know the beautiful gospel. Is this not truly good news? Friends, do you remember that this is good news? How quickly our mind and our heart fails when we look at the circumstances that are swirling around us. Wars and rumors of wars run wild right now, do they not? Even in our own country, we have so much political and social turmoil. And we can become discouraged and distressed, saying, God, what are you doing? What, what is happening? But God is still on his throne. And his redemptive plan is still on a mission to seek and to save that which was lost. And he has called us, as we read this morning from 1 Corinthians 5. He's called us as his representatives, his ambassadors, to go with this message to implore, implore the world to be reconciled to God. God making his appeal through whom? Through us, the church, the body of Christ. He could have chosen any means to do so, but he has chosen us to be the mouthpiece of God and to bring the hope of the gospel to a lost world. And so, friends, no matter what circumstances may tell you, God is at work, and Jesus has come, and he has defeated sin, death, and hell. And friends, this morning we truly have good news to encourage our hearts and to embolden our lives, to encourage us as we go about this world. So this Advent season, this Christmas series isn't about a season or another holiday it is about Jesus, and our hope and prayer is that above all, we will see that Jesus truly is better. Throughout the line of Christ, whether it be the shining stars of success or these shocking inclusions that we'll look at through this series, the lineage of Jesus is truly a lineage of hope. Through it all, our, our hope is that we will see God's redemptive plan throughout history unfolding in the pages of Scripture how these Old Testament figures look forward to with great expectation the promised Messiah, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and who would have victory over death and hell, the one that we know to be Jesus Christ, the one that we now look back to and we give our lives to, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him and true biblical discipleship. 
And so these Old Testament figures, what did they do? They waited. And they waited. And they waited some more. And as they waited, this gift of faith was established in them. And so they trusted God's word and they continued to wait on God, trusting in him to be faithful to his covenant promises. And just as we have learned over the years of digging through God's word expositionally, verse by verse, do we not know that God will always be faithful to fulfill his covenant promises to his people? He will not fail. He cannot fail. He can only be faithful to what he said he would do. And so, friend, this is the hope that we have as we look at this series, The Lineage of Hope. It starts with Adam, and as we move on to Enoch, and we look at this better righteousness that is found in the person and work of Jesus, this brings us to our big idea, and it's this. Perfect righteousness can only be found in and through Jesus. Perfect righteousness can only be found in and through Jesus. So this morning, we're going to examine just two simple points this morning. We're going to remember, as we look at these two simple points all the way through, that Jesus is better. So let that be the foundation as we're coming off of this series of Hebrews and we've hit a timeout. Do you remember talking about Jesus is better just a couple times over the last few months? Let that foundation carry us as we look at each and every Old Testament figure that Jesus is better. So the first point we're going to look at this morning is the reality of Enoch's righteousness. The reality of Enoch's righteousness. Enoch is no doubt this intriguing figure in the scriptures. We covered him briefly as we worked through uh, that series through Genesis a number of years ago. I'm sure you all remember that just crystal clear, just like it was yesterday. And we covered Enoch just recently as Pastor Dave worked through Hebrews chapter number 11. And in both of those statements, you'll notice that I included this adverb briefly. Why? Because God's word is brief in its description, in its coverage of this Old Testament figure of Enoch. So that said, we're not going to speculate. We're not going to go down rabbit holes of conjecture and what we think and what might be the case around this character. We're just simply going to look at the text and make some observations about the life and the testimony of this Old Testament figure of Enoch. I think one of the most significant aspects to point out concerning Enoch is that he lived during a time of perceived silence in the history of mankind between Adam and and Noah. I say perceived because we know God is not silent or um, uh, idle. He's certainly always working in the history of mankind. And the fact that we have this testimony of Enoch walking with God uh, is proof of God working even in Enoch's day. But we have Enoch here as a figure in the Old Testament where he stands in history at a time where there's not a lot that we know about history. There's not a lot of of God's works being recorded during this time period. We have simply Enoch. And right there between these two very significant figures that we know probably a lot more about and that Scripture tells us much more about, Adam, 
that Pastor Dave unpacked last week and Noah that we will unpack further in this series, Lineage of Hope, we have this, this figure of Enoch. There really are two main biblical texts concerning Enoch, Genesis chapter number five, verses 18 through 24, and Hebrews 11, five. And there's a, a third reference where Enoch is actually quoted in the book of Jude. And we're going to look at all three of these uh, scriptures that reference Enoch. And so let's, let's look at each one of these briefly. Let's first start with Genesis chapter number five, verses 18 through 24. We're going to read this text. And again, we'll make a few observations as we continue to work uh, through our message this morning. Genesis chapter number five, verses 18 through 24. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Again, a few observations here. Enoch first was fathered by Jared. And Enoch was, excuse me, and Enoch fathered Methuselah. And I know Methuselah is always a fun Old Testament figure for the kids. Uh, what do we know about Methuselah, kids? What was it? Somebody shout it out for me, nice and loud. That's right, yeah. We know Methuselah lived longer than anybody else. He is the whole oldest age of anybody recorded in the history of mankind, right? So Enoch, relative to his son and to his father, Enoch lived a relatively short life, about a third of the years recorded for Jared and Methuselah. Why was that? We see this unique phrase added in for Enoch that we don't see for anyone else in this genealogy of Genesis chapter number five, starting with Adam and, and working down through. And what is that phrase? He walked with God. This phrase denotes a close and very intimate relationship with God, suggesting a life characterized by faith, obedience, fellowship, and fellowship. It reflects a closeness, a, a communion, and a shared journey with God. This is a testimony of the life of Enoch. And what a really marvelous testimony that is, right? If there were just a few words that were spoken in Scripture about you, would you not want them to be, you walked with God? Is there anything more? that you would want than that to be the testimony of your life, that you simply walked with God. There was a communion, a relationship, a fellowship, a closeness, an intimacy in your understanding of who God is and his relationship with you. So Enoch's life was marked by a continuous awareness of God's presence. Thus, he walked with God. Side note for application, is your life marked by a continuous awareness of God's presence? 
Do you live your daily life in, in light of the reality that God is working in your midst? That he has called you as a Christ follower to be an ambassador as well, 2 Corinthians 5? And that he desires to use you to make his appeal to mankind to be reconciled to God? Do you realize this morning that God is working in our midst and he desires you to be engaged in great commission living to go and to make disciples? That's not just work for pastors, elders, and deacons and, and other leaders. It's a work for the body of Christ collectively to come together and do what? Make disciples. This is what it looks like to live in a continuous awareness of God's presence, what he's doing, what he desires, his plans, his purposes. Enoch lived in a continuous awareness of God. As a result of this walking with God, verse 24 says he was not, for God took him. So at a fairly young age for that time, Enoch was taken up by the Lord, and he did not taste death. Such a unique but yet significant testimony in Scripture, is it not? Our minds are intrigued with, what did this look like? Um, why Enoch? Um, was, was there something unique about this relationship and faith and obedience that the Lord allowed Enoch to experience that God took him up? Our minds can speculate and we can layer in conjecture, but ultimately Scripture doesn't speak to why, simply that he walked with God. And as we look forward, we understand that he had great faith in the Lord. The reality of Enoch's righteousness was based in this text. Chapter 5 of Genesis is the genealogy of the descendants of Adam. And just as Pastor Dave reminded us last week, we know that we need a better representative. And this better representative can be filled by nobody else but Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has a better righteousness. Why? Because Adam failed. He rebelled. He broke God's law. He chose sin. Do you remember Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that Pastor Dave pointed us to? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. How many have sinned? All. All descendants of Adam have sinned. And so as we look at this character of Enoch, we could, we could get caught up in, in the speculation. We could get caught up with all these ancillary ideas or thoughts. But the reality and the truth of it is, is that Enoch was still conceived in sin. He still had a sin nature. And so all we hear about Enoch in Scripture is technically good and positive. There's no major failure, even sin that's noted in his life. But we know, based off the truth of Scripture and the testimony of Romans chapter 5, verse number 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. All have sinned. The question is, does that include Enoch? 
Absolutely. Does that include you and me? Yes. Does that include every descendant of Adam that will come? The answer to that is yes. All who come after Adam have sinned, and thus they have fallen short of the glory of God. Do you remember the standard of holiness that we saw outlined in Hebrews chapter 9 and even in Hebrews chapter number 10 that we read as our call to worship this morning? As we looked at the tabernacle, the holy places, the most holy places, and all the detail and preparation that was required by the Levitical priest to represent the people of God on the Day of Atonement, the requirement is holiness. It is righteousness. It is perfect holiness and perfect righteousness. Enoch walked with God this side of eternity, but he certainly was still a sinner born as a descendant of Adam. His righteousness in and of himself within the line of Christ was inadequate. The hope of mankind still needed a better righteousness. The line didn't stop with Enoch. Why? Because he had no righteousness that could save. There was a better representative and a better righteousness to come. He was not the Messiah. He did not fulfill prophecy. And so, friends, although there's much to learn about Enoch, his relationship with the Lord and the testimony of his life, we know that all of that was simply a gift of grace in his life. There was no self-righteousness that Enoch mustered up that separated him from mankind. This was God's grace working in his life, living in this continual Awareness of God's presence. He walked with God and had a great faith that, that was recorded in the pages of Scripture for our benefit. Next, we see Enoch represented in Hebrews chapter number 11. Certainly, we'll attempt not to re preach what Pastor Dave has just gone through in chapter 11, but I do want to make a few comments from this text in Hebrews 11, verse. Number five and verse number six. Let's go ahead and look at those verses. Hebrews 11, verses five and six. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Let's read on down to verse number six. And without faith, then, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he is, and that he rewards those who seek him. So a couple of nuances that are new here in Hebrews chapter number 11 that weren't present in Genesis chapter number 5. First, Enoch's walk with God in Genesis 5 is now described in terms of faith. So by faith, Enoch was taken up. And before that happened, he was commended as having pleased the Lord. The question is, what was it that pleased the Lord? Did, did Enoch please the Lord in some sort of toe-the-line type of compliance with his obedience and, and, his, and his ability to follow through with God's law and God's plan and God's purposes? Did Enoch have some of, 
uh, just more of his stuff together, so to speak, more so than others, and, and he was now just a model of discipline and obedience? The answer to those questions is no. What pleased the Lord was Enoch's what? It was his faith. This is what pleases the Lord is his faith. Verse 5, by faith. In verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please him. So we don't want to make Enoch out to be some superhuman Christian. We're not here to put Enoch on a pedestal. He had the same blood coursing through his veins that you and I do. He's still a descendant of Adam. But it was because of his faith that he was taken up. And what pleased the Lord was not some self-righteous, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, manufactured self-reliance. This, this does not please the Lord. What pleased the Lord was true biblical faith that Enoch had by God's grace. Without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord What do we know about faith? Ephesians chapter number two, verses eight through 10. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should simply what? Walk in them. In our understanding of Scripture and God's redemptive plan throughout the history of mankind, the source of faith is always God. And faith realized in anyone's life is only possible because of God's good grace. So faith then, as we see it in Ephesians 2, is a gift. What actually pleased the Lord in Enoch's life was the evidence of God's grace working in and through him which produced a persevering faith. And that persevering faith is what the author of Hebrews recorded as significant along with the other Old Testament figures there in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Good works, the enduring relationship The walking with God, the faith that's recorded in Scripture, God had already prepared beforehand, and Enoch simply walked in them. This is true for any of our lives, the good works that we put on display in this world. God prepared these good works beforehand. This isn't anything that look at me, look at what I've done, look at my talents and abilities, look at my winsome uh, personality, look at the skill or oratory that I have. This is God preparing these good works beforehand that we should simply walk in them in obedience and faith, trusting him and following him, denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily. One final passage to examine The life of Enoch in scriptures comes to us in the book of Jude. Look at me at verses 14 through 16. The book of Jude, 
We're going to look at verses 14 through 16. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, the malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. It's in this passage that Jude quotes from an extra-biblical Jewish text and further warns the recipients of this short letter against these false teachers. I'm sure at some point and someday we'll, we'll go through this short letter of, of the book of Jude, but this is an interesting quotation that Jude makes here in verses 14 and 15. Apparently, Jewish historical literature engaged in significant speculation about Enoch. Again, they had as much as we did concerning who Enoch is and what he did. Uh, but there was something unique about Enoch and his life, and there's a lot of historical, extra-biblical writing concerning Enoch, so much so that Enoch became regarded as a recipient of heavenly visions and, and revelations. And these are recorded in a series of books named after him. You might have heard of the book of Enoch at some point. This book of Enoch was not included in the canon of Scripture for many reasons, but primarily due to concerns with authorship and the late date of composition relative to Enoch's actual lifespan. So it's just improbable that Enoch actually wrote this collection of writings that we have, although there certainly are some good things and some things that line up with Scripture. There's some other things that um, would conflict in the theological understanding of the Word of God. Uh, but regardless, in general, it's concerns around reliability as an authentic account, thus it was not included in our canon of Scripture. That said, Jude quotes from it, uh, and that's, that's an interesting uh, situation that we have in front of us. It's included in our text, and it's important to note that this particular quotation, it does align with some other understandings of Old Testament references, specifically from Deuteronomy 33, and Daniel 7, and it's consistent, again, with the canonical scriptures in this instance. So in our text, in Jude, as well as Deuteronomy 33 and Daniel 7, there is a judgment scene that's being uh, put on display here. And in this judgment scene, there's a host of tens of thousands of his holy ones that have gathered, and they're ready to do what? They're ready to execute judgment, on the ungodliness that is present, specifically in the church and ungodliness as a whole. In this case, it seems that the ungodliness, again, has slipped in under the guise of church. Jude is warning against these false teachers that are gathering tares together in, in a congregation or a form of a congregation. They're giving false hope under a false gospel. You remember these false teachers are, are doing what? They're, 
they're, they're deceiving for personal gain. So there's much concern here that uh, this quote from the book of Enoch is calling out ungodliness. And it's interesting that Enoch, a very righteous man in Scripture, would be attributed to this um, prophetic utterance against the ungodliness of that day. So whether it be personal, whether it be on a corporate or church level, the testimony of Enoch is that we need a better righteousness. So this brings us to our second and final point this morning, the, prov- the provision, excuse me, of Jesus' righteousness. We see the reality of Enoch's righteousness is that he was still in sin. Although he had a very intimate and personal relationship with the Lord, he walked with God, and by faith he was taken up, and how wonderful and neat that is for us to consider. But at the end of the day, Enoch and his righteousness was inadequate in and of himself and certainly for saving others. And so we look forward to a better representative with a better righteousness. The provision of Jesus' righteousness. Again, Pastor Dave beautifully laid this out last week. Adam failed. He described in detail from Romans 5 how our sin has broken fellowship with the holy God and any righteousness outside of the person and work of Jesus will be inadequate to save. It cannot save. Why? Because it is not actually righteous righteousness. Right? It, it, is, it is not the real thing. Any righteousness that would be credited outside of the personal, in the personal work of Jesus will always fall short. You see Isaiah 64, verse number 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind, they take us away. We need a better righteousness. Why? Because in and of ourselves, we have no true righteousness that is able to save. There is no quickening. There is no ability to make alive. There is no ability to save of a righteousness that is of our own. By nature, we are sinners in need of saving, incapable of saving ourselves. We need to be reconciled back to God. The relationship that was broken by Adam's rebellion in the garden and continues to be broken by our participation in that rebellion, that broken relationship needs to be restored. And here's the good news. God made a way, amen? God has made a way, this redemptive plan that is unfolding through history and in every generation he is making his appeal to mankind through the word, through the spirit of God and through his saved and redeemed ambassadors. He implores the world to be reconciled to God. And this is the lineage of hope. The hope that we have in the personal work of Jesus. Do you remember John chapter six, verse number 45? No one can come to me unless The Father who sent me draws him, and I, Jesus speaking, will raise him up on the last day. You remember Romans 5, verse number 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that word, justified by faith. 
Justification and righteousness theologically go hand in hand. Since then, the biblical definition of righteousness, it encompasses a right relationship with God and entering into a right relationship with God is secured through the theological process that we know as justification. Justification then is what? It is God's legal declaration of righteousness. When we are justified, it is God making his will known that there is no sin. There is righteousness secured through the person and work of Jesus. Remember, this is God's standard of relationship and intimate fellowship. It's holiness. It's perfection. It's righteousness. The standard of righteousness is made possible now through Faith in Christ. And his perfect righteousness is applied or imputed to those that by God's grace have faith in Jesus. We know this to be that great exchange. Christ taking our unrighteousness to the cross and through his atoning work, Jesus giving his perfect righteousness to us. So then and only then we have peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace because we have been justified. We have been declared righteous. Jesus paid the ransom, the debt that we could never pay. So as God the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son. And he says, Eric, you're righteous positionally before the Father right now at this moment, everyone that is a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone, you're positionally before God right now, righteous. That is a beautiful hope. Christ is the source, the means, the preservation of our righteousness. Nothing is left to us. We would fail. This is good news for us. If you're looking for the reason for the season, again, it's not presents or earthly pleasures or possessions. It's realizing that you have rebelled against a holy God. Where the first Adam has failed, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our better representative, has secured the victory. For he came from the Father, he took on flesh, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, gave his life, shed his blood to atone for the sin, was buried on the third day, rose victorious, defeating sin, defeating death, as much as he had made a way for us to be righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 was read during our scripture reading this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, he, meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, meaning Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Did you get that? For our sake. Did you consider that? 
for your sake. He made a way. He, meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, meaning Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What an incredible miracle. What incredible hope. It was for our sake, generation after generation, that God made a way for sinful mankind to be in relationship with him, for it is only through him, when we are in him, that we can become righteous. Holiness and righteousness is the standard. His son was the only way, and grace is made known to us through the scriptures, where we see in John 14, verse number 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. A better righteousness is what Jesus has, and a better righteousness is what he offers, and a better righteousness is what he secures for our sake. Can I have an amen? For our sake, Jesus did that work. Do you bow your head, close your eyes, join me in a word of prayer as we just take a moment to reflect on these realities. God, I thank you for the testimony of Enoch. I thank you for the work of grace in his life as recorded in Scripture, that he surrendered, submitted his life, walked by faith, walked with you. Father, we don't know why you took him up. We don't necessarily know and understand all the reasons why we have recorded in Scripture this testimony of Enoch, but we know that he didn't taste death. What incredible hope we have in a future picture for those, some that will not taste death as we look forward to your second coming. And just as Enoch had a season of waiting, and yet in that waiting, he walked and had faith. God, I pray as we wait for your second coming, that we would look forward in anticipation, that whether we taste death or whether we caught up together with you, there's great hope of an inheritance for those to have faith in Christ by grace through faith. So God, I pray that we would remember this morning the hope that we have, not in our own self-righteousness, not in our own ability to keep your law because we know we can and we will fail. Father, I pray that we would remember the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that he did the work that we could not do. And he was a better representative with a better righteousness. And so it is Jesus that we look to this morning. So Father, even as a church, as we gather and sing this final song of all sufficient merit, we thank you that your holiness and your righteousness is sufficient. 
Nothing else is needed. No more debt I owe. It is done. It is done. And we thank you for that hope that we have this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.